Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanabi. My name is Uzair Yunus and today I have the honor of hosting Dr. Tanvi Madan with me, who is director of the India Project and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, she has authored a wonderful book, Fateful Triangle, How China Shaped U.S.-India Relations During the Cold War, which is a great historical take. I haven't fully read the book. I've read excerpts of it, and it is a must-read, even though I've not fully digested the book yet. And she also recently authored a paper titled Major Power Rivalry in South Asia. It's a discussion paper that takes a look at what's going on in the region and how this emerging US-China rivalry, what's going on with India and China, what the Chinese are trying to do with the BRI and other regional powers in South Asia, uh, what the implications of all of this are. Um, so I figured that today we sort of step away from our internal lens at Pakistan and look at the region more broadly. Um, and, and the links to both the book and the paper are in the description below, and I highly recommend uh, that you do check it out. So, Dr. Tanvi, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Pakistanomy. Uh, thanks so much, Jose. It's great to be on the podcast. I want to start with your CFR publication, and, and as I was reading it, one thing that struck to me, and of course, there's been a lot of conversation around what's going on in South Asia and the broader Indian Ocean. Um, you write, quote, that this will be a significant arena of major power competition, end quote, in the coming years. Um, of course, a lot of the audience for this podcast is based in Pakistan and in India. Some 40% of the listeners are Indian. Um, so perhaps start by sketching sort of a map of why you believe uh, uh, this area, this competition is emerging in this arena, and what are the broader implications of this? So I think one of the things that the report, um, in fact, st the starting point of the report is to kind of point out that this is going to, uh, this kind of major power competition and these rivalries um, are going to look very different or mean different things uh, for countries in the region, including India and Pakistan, uh, than the Cold War did um, and US-Soviet competition did. And the report makes the point that during the Cold War, yes, you know, Pakistan was a, a US ally, um, India, uh, uh, you know, kind of was non-aligned and played one off against the other. Um, but largely, especially for most of the Cold War, I think the one exception was um, the developments in Afghanistan after the Soviet invasion in 1979. But otherwise, um, South Asia was considered fairly kind of secondary as an arena, if not tertiary, in of an arena of competition. Uh, some of your listeners might remember, uh, and you might remember, that Robert McMahon wrote a great book uh, called Cold War, uh, about the Cold War in South Asia. And it was called, and the kind of subtitle was uh, Cold War on the Periphery. I think that actually was the title. Um, and, you know, that told you kind of where uh, where the kind of focus uh, was. And, you know, initially in the Cold War, it was Europe, and then it was kind of East Asia, uh, East Asia um, uh, for, for other chunks when, in, in the, uh, when Asia did come into kind of focus. Um, what you're seeing today, and I argue that makes this kind of different and will have to, will require, I think you think, you, you know, we can talk about some similarities I think you'll see from the Cold War that I think India and Pakistan will be familiar uh, to India and Pakistan, and they can even try some of the same tactics. But I think as the landscape and kind of where the focus areas is, I argue that this competitive era is going to be different uh, for the region. And the reason I say that is because for one, and you know, I've been asked by others, by the way, you know, why didn't you look at India, Pakistan more deeply? And it's partly because I was told, I was given, like I said, okay, you know what, this is major power rivalry in South Asia. Who do you consider major powers and whose rivalries? And so, you know, I was given a list, it was US, India, China, Russia, uh, Europe, um, and your, you know, as a whole, but I could look at uh, European countries, potentially Japan as well. And so kind of stepping back again, I think, you know, if you look at the two major, uh, main kind of major power rivalries that will affect this region, and there will be others, but the two that will affect them are China, India, and US-China rivalries. And what I say in the paper and, and show is that one of those two rivalries is in taking place in South Asia itself or in the Indo-Pacific or in the kind of Indian Ocean region. And so this is not a competition that's outside and will shape the region. It is happening uh, in the region. 
Um, and it is happening uh, at a time when uh, China-India competition is intensified uh, around uh, the region as well. And different countries other than those two are very much part of uh, the battleground, so to speak, when Beijing and Delhi think about uh, this competition. I think the second reason why is that if you think about um, even US-China competition, you're already seeing the Indo-Pacific broadly, of which South Asia and the Indian Ocean region form a part, already is a key arena of competition. So it doesn't even have to be argued of seeing it all around, whether it's in terms of connectivity, whether it's in terms of kind of influence, um, whether it's in terms of kind of geopolitical or military access. And so I think you are seeing already this um, uh, region be an arena for competition. And the other thing is that one of the two countries that is involved now, when you, the US and Soviet Union were facing off, both were kind of distant powers. I mean, Soviet Union wasn't that far, uh, but they were relatively distant powers. What you're seeing today is at least one of those two main antagonists, uh, it is at South Asia's doorstep uh, and particularly at India's doorstep. And you're seeing China now more active than ever before in pretty much every region, every country in South Asia and increasingly making forays into the Indian Ocean region. And I, so I think for those reasons, you are going to see the impact. Uh, and then you, know, you could add the you know, uh, technology, the kind of global tele, uh, telecom, technology standards, et cetera. So this is kind of a, a standards competition, a rules competition that's playing out in international institutions. And I think you know, South Asian countries will also be seen as countries to woo uh, auditor uh, in these various spaces. I think the other thing that, and I think one of the implications would be is that this is not something the smaller South Asian states can necessarily say we will sit away from. So I think where we will see similarity uh, is that the countries other than US, China, India, and some of the other major powers in the region, which we can talk about, um, will actually try to do what smaller states did, including smaller states like, or, or kind of non-US Soviet countries like India and like Pakistan uh, during the Cold War, which is that they will try to play one off against the other to try to elicit as many benefits as they can and try to kind of minimize the risks or at least insulate themselves from the worst of uh, the crises. But I think there is a warning there as well. If there is crisis, it spills over. It will spill over. I think uh, for everybody's interests. You you mentioned one thing that you know there are similarities with what happened in the Cold War, particularly with India sort of being non-aligned but closer to the USSR, particularly in terms of you know the military assistance it got and everything else. Um, many in Pakistan increasingly now believe that India is firmly in the American camp. Um, and, you know, the Pakistanis are sort of talking and looking back at history and saying, well, we should have done what India did in the Cold War, which is play off these sides against each other to get what it wanted. Um, and we don't want to be clubbed into the China camp, right? There's this emerging discourse in Pakistan. How do you see that playing out? And one, do you agree with this perspective, at least from the Pakistani lens, that India is fully in the American camp, um, so to speak, with the Quad and everything else? And two, um, is it going to be as simple as bargaining the way it happened in the Cold War, or is it like going to be much, much trickier given everything else that's changed in the world? Um, so that's giving Ayub Khan far too little credit, I think, um, because what, and in, it, you know, in some ways it's, it's, people joke in India, the exact opposite. You know, Pakistan managed to you know, have its cake and eat it too during the Cold War. And if you actually look at what Ayub did, and you know, he, it is interesting, uh, just like you saw kind of a decade or so later, um, and actually two decades later, uh, Zulfikar Bhutto learned, for example, on the domestic politics side, pick up tips from kind of Indira Gandhi's campaigns, um, the Roti Kaprarmakan thing, you did actually see some learning. And so what you saw is, even in the Cold War, you saw Ayub, um, and, and Zulfikar Bhutto arguing for this too as foreign minister to actually, even while being a US ally, to deepen relations with China and uh, eventually the Soviet Union, but particularly China. So when China and Pakistan relations start developing in the early 60s, 
um, and especially when the deal was the border uh, deal that was signed in 63. At that time, the US was very much still uh, an American, I mean, uh, a Pakistani ally. And you heard this frustration from, uh, you know, presidents kind of Kennedy and first Eisenhower, then Kennedy, then Johnson. And President Johnson, in very uh, very blunt terms, um, where he said, "You know, how is Pakistan getting away with this? That you know they are allies, and uh, they are hanging out with our main kind of rivals, uh, particularly as the Vietnam War was unfolding." So I would just say that you know one of the things is um, I actually think Pakistan managed to be non-aligned and aligned at the same time in some ways, or at least um, as an ally did still find ways to play one off against the other. Late 60s even managed to get military equipment from uh, the USSR. Uh, but I do think today, you know, what you're going to see in terms of kind of India's position, and I recently wrote a War on the Rocks piece uh, on this um, and did some of the kind of more Cold War comparison for a Washington quarterly piece last year. But I mean, both make the point that this um, US-China competition for India, uh, it is not going to walk a middle path uh, or sit on the fence uh, or sit on the sidelines, um, not just because geographically it is taking place within the region um, or because the distribution of power is different and India has is kind of one of the major powers that can't really sit these things out. But most significantly, because India's relationship with the two antagonists is very different from what it was with the US and Soviet Union. So with the US and Soviet Union, uh, India could play one off against the other. It was important to both those countries as a kind of swing state. Um, and it had no major disputes, fundamental bilateral disputes. Differences, yes, but no major disputes. Today, if you look at the competition in one corner, you have the, you know, India's closest partner, arguably the US, and in another corner you have China, uh, India's main rival, uh, alone in conjunction as India sees it with Pakistan. So in that sense, I mean, even Nehru said there's no non-alignment vis-a-vis China, but I think, you know, you've seen when India has aligned in the past. It has been first uh, in the 60s with the US and then in the 70s with uh, the Soviet Union, both times uh, were with um, were to balance China and both, and I think you're seeing that again, where when it comes to an external security challenge, one that India has recognized that it cannot tackle on its own uh, with a, a large capabilities gap that the report mentions, um, you know, 30 years ago, China, India economies were the same size, about the same size. Today, China's economy is five times that of India. So I think India recognizes it needs partners and China and, uh, and, and the US and India are aligned on, on particularly perceptions about concerns about China and uh, largely on the approach to take towards uh, tackling those concerns. And so I think you are seeing India making choices that will often align with the US and other kind of its allies, like-minded allies, but not always. Um, and how the US and India handle those times that they do have differences, I think will help determine how far and fast the US and India can cooperate together. So I don't think the US, India is going to kind of join a block, so to speak, but I think it, the decisions it makes will largely kind of um, align uh, with those of the US, particularly vis-a-vis -vis, uh, vis -vis China. So I think one thing that you're absolutely right, right, that the Soviet-US rivalry was distant even in the broader South Asian context. It changed, for example, for Pakistan fundamentally when the invasion of Afghanistan happened. Um, but in this particular case, the core issue, so to speak, between at least the India-China rivalry um, is the boundary dispute in the north. Um, and we've seen over the last few months, uh, you know, conflict break out, so to speak, in the northern uh, border regions. Um, Indian military leaders have talked about the fears of a two and a half front war or a two front war emerge or re-emerge, so to speak. Um, we've seen in many historical examples that such disputes in the middle of a rivalry often lead to conflict, broader conflict. Um, and there's been some talk about resolving this if talks haven't moved forward. How do you see um, this dispute progressing given this rivalry and given the intensification of this broader geopolitical rivalry between the US and China and in India, sort of looking at that as well, um, particularly in the context of 
what we've seen in both um, China and in India, but broader region and globally, it's a phenomenon is rising nationalism, right? So Xi Jinping represents a rising China, uh, Prime Minister Modi represents uh, India that is more muscular in its approach. Um, how do all of these things play out given that the core issue is a boundary dispute and their neighbors and they've actually started to come to blows again? You know, and it's, it's quite interesting, especially talking about this in the context of um, also kind of India, Pakistan ties, which is if you actually think about it for China and India have had this kind of, un, it is the longest undemarcated boundary in the world. And yet compared to the LOC, the line of, line of control, the line of actual control and the kind of broader undemarcated uh, boundary between uh, China and India has been relatively, had been relatively calm. Um, and particularly, I think you saw after the 1988 boundary dispute between uh, boundary incidents between China and India, it was relatively common. Part of the reason is that there was a process there of dialogue, mechanisms, et cetera, that had been set up, a series of agreements on the China-India side, um, which between, I think, 1993 and, and 20, I can't remember if the last one was signed in 2012 or 2013, but you saw those sets of agreements, those five agreements and kind of sub-agreements within that, that um, laid out a way to manage the boundary dispute. It created some mechanism to, for the two countries to start talking about resolving the boundary dispute because they have competing claims. But they, the, the bigger focus in some ways was we will keep, we will manage the boundary dispute through these various mechanisms, agreements, protocols, including, you know, joint, I mean, not joint patrolling, but both sides patrolling in certain areas, not carrying loaded uh, weapons, for example, rules of engagement uh, that were not, that were designed not to be escalatory. So compared to kind of, you know, the constant firing across the LOC, you actually saw a fairly calm uh, boundary or relatively calm boundary uh, for years. Um, those and the reason I mentioned those agreements is related to the question of can this can this be resolved? Um, I think those agreements uh, from India's perspective and and what those agreements did is those agreements helped open the door to the broader uh, development of a broader China India relationship, whether it was economic developing economic ties, whether it was their cooperation in on many global governance issues, including trade, including, climate change, including, you know, asking for greater representation in global economic governance institutions. And you did see that those agreements both maintain stability of the boundary and then consequently create the space for the relationship to move forward. The reason these, what you saw is kind of a change after um, Xi Jinping came to power. And we don't know if it's because Xi Jinping came to power or because it just also so happens that these uh, positions around the boundary are to both sides now more accessible because of infrastructure building than they used to be. So they're bumping up against each other a lot more. And so some have argued, well, you know, uh, the agreements uh, weren't built to kind of withstand that. Others say, no, that's not the case. And sorry to interrupt, but some would even argue that this was all part of a masterful Chinese grand strategy of biding their time. And now that they have the capacity to push the boundaries as much as they can, given that they have the power. You know, I, I, that's absolutely right. And that one question is, you know, were, for example, the boundary crisis last year in particular, were the Chinese moves at the border, because we did see this as part of a bro broader kind of Chinese assertiveness around uh, its neighborhood. But it is interesting because, um, you know, I, I am skeptical of the China is a, you know, nine uh, foot tall or 12 foot tall playing nine dimensional chess uh, grand strategist because to me, I don't know, call me old fashioned, but any strategy that, uh, yes, it, it, it is about your domestic imperatives, but manages to upset pretty much all your, all your major neighbors in a significant way is probably not all that grand. So maybe a strategy, uh, maybe for your domestic audience, but, but you're right. I think you know, there is this question, what has, what has been, um, why has this happened? But, you know, given that this is the fourth major military standoff since kind of Xi Jinping came to power and, and fundamentally different. And the reason it is different and harder to resolve uh, this particular crisis is, and one can hope that it is at least stabilized. 
And so the good thing about the agreements is that they have kept, they have, uh, they allowed for or created the mechanisms that the two countries have been using to ensure that this doesn't go even further out of control. Mechanisms that don't exist in the India-Pakistan case and money in, in many cases. They are obviously mechanisms, um, but you know, they, you have seen on the India-China side, the very mechanisms that are now under great strain, they are nonetheless useful in terms of uh, making sure there hasn't been further escalation or crisis communication, et cetera, is possible. And so I think what you have seen is um, uh, that those mechanisms have been useful. They are being used to potentially at least try to stabilize the relationship. This is where India and China are negotiating is in some of these groups, particularly the kind of military dialogue mechanisms. But at the same time, from the Indian perspective, they see what happened last year as China, you know, and the government will say attempting to change the status quo. Most people will say have ch has changed the status quo at the boundary, the way the recent Pentagon um, uh, military, China military power report put it was Chinese incursions. Um, and what you saw is that I haven't seen this kind of kind of consensus across India's China watching community and China hands, where pretty much ever every major, I mean, you didn't hear too many of the, uh, um, uh, you know, sitting officials say things publicly, but you saw almost every former Indian ambassador to China or former kind of foreign secretary who's been a China specialist say one thing, you know, talk about this as being fundamentally different talk about this as being a violation of uh, the boundary agreements. That is something the Indian government has said as well. Now, why is that important? It's because um, you might be able to stabilize the boundary agreement about boundary situation if, you know, China, for example, um, uh, uh, either we have a new kind of normal, that this is what it is, or, you know, you China might actually decide, okay, that piece of, land we grabbed is just not worth, uh, worth this uh, and decide to kind of de-escalate or disengage from uh, the forward, uh, from kind of forward deployment of these. But I think what you will see, or at least those uh, positions, I think what you won't see is, is going back to where we were in terms of the broader relationship or even deployments at the border. And that is because of this sense in India that the boundary agreements were violated. Because the sense now is, how do we know that China won't do this again? How do we trust that, um, you know, we have these agreements that the moment we let our guard down, and I think it was particularly grating to India that this took advantage of Indian ex exercises not taking place due to COVID. Uh, and so China saw that as a window of opportunity. And so I think that lack of trust is going to mean, we're seeing now a second straight winter where the troops will remain forward deployed. And I think as long as there's a lack of trust and I don't see anything that will resolve that, you can see a stabilizing of the situation at the boundary. We can hopefully see no further escalation. Um, but I find it hard to believe that you will see a return to um, status quo ante in the relationship, even if you see it at the boundary, because I think there is not going to be trust that agreements. And so you, I think what you will see is um, forward deployed troops. So, I don't think the LAC will look exactly like the LOC, but it'll look a lot more like the LOC, um, hopefully without the constant firing um, and ceasefire violations. Um, but I do think you will see a, a more militarized uh, boundary. And you're already seeing, and the longer this continues, India and China are taking steps that will solidify the actions they've taken in terms of domestic policies. So India imposing restrictions and extra scrutiny and a range of Chinese involvement in various sectors. Um, and uh, doubling down on India, for example, doubling down on partnerships with the US, France, you know, Japan, um, uh, even maintaining its relationship with Russia, and you know, China doing things like their new land boundary law, etc. So I think the longer this continues, the more we see the solidify. So I think this is really going to be about managing competition rather than kind of resolving the disputes. Um, that was hard even before. And I think it's become much, much harder today. How do you rate then given, so, you know, obviously the economic sort of gap between China and India is huge, but India has historically 
had pretty decent relations in the broader region, so to speak. It's also kind of made efforts to improve relations with Bangladesh over the last few years, although you know some volatility here and there keeps emerging. Um, how do you see India's sort of broader regional strategy in South Asia as a means to sort of push back or restrain growing Chinese influence? I mean, I was just reading up on the fact that, you know, we had the Durga Puja riots in, 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 in Bangladesh and part of the sort of in so many words criticism uh, from the Sheikh Hasina government came was that your, i.e. I, Indian government's, you know, position on these things or what they say in political speeches is not helping the situation and we saw what happened in Tripura after that. So given sort of this encroaching of China in the broader South Asian region, how do you see India's role in the in, in its relations with its close neighbors to say, you know what, that might actually be a good way to push back against the Chinese as well. So I think, you know, my, my colleague Constantino Xavier writes a fair bit about this in terms of India's uh, neighborhood strategy. I think multiple Indian prime ministers have had a similar view that India can do best if it takes the re region along and if it is, um, if, if it is has good relations uh, and cooperative relations. Now, this is translated in different ways. So sometimes you've seen kind of a heavy-handed India, which like most big countries and regions, you know, in the hegemon, in the academic sense, which is you do end up, you want your preferences to shape their choices. Well, it's, it's uh, funny in that sense, like given that, you know, when you, I often talk to Pakistanis about this and they say, well, the Indians complain about China sort of being the hegemon and pushing everybody around because of its size. Well, look what India does in the region itself, given its size and hegemonic attitude. Well, and and you know, you heard this from Afghans about Pakistan as well, right? So you see, always see this in, in when there's this kind of um, capabilities issue. And, and China then complains about this, about the US. So I think, you know, but the, the thing is the for the smaller states, they don't necessarily mind as what Constantino Xavier has called like a more competitive South Asian region, because they will now do what India did during the Cold War. You're going to play one off against the other to derive uh, benefits. Um, and so you've seen this with Bangladesh, you've seen this with Nepal, you've seen this with Sri Lanka, you've seen this with the Maldives as well. Now you do also see this, and I'll come to this, perhaps, you know, because I think this is where you can see sometimes kind of major power rivalries end up being destabilizing politically within these countries as well, because they use competition uh, or, you know, these different countries will support different political parties or will look the other way while, for example, you know, uh, you're not having a free and open election because you don't want to say anything about democracy or human rights that will upset that country and push them towards China. Um, and so, you know, you will, or it'll prevent, for example, you know, China and the US and everybody who might be concerned, for example, about Afghanistan and stability there, you might take different actions because uh, you think the other guy will undercut you, or you would rather preserve your space there rather than ensure that a government is more inclusive. So I do think, you know, this is another place this will interact, but I think um, for India, the challenge is because it has gone from being, I mean, you know, speaking in economic terms, from having a monopoly in the region, or near monopoly to now having to deal with kind of a more free market or at least a, a more competitive space where countries have choices. It means India has to up its game. Uh, it also means India is, and you've already seen this, and you know whether it's in terms of uh, delivering on its connectivity projects, which it has many, delivering on assistance, upping its game in terms of both soft power and um, military economic assistance, capacity building, uh, making it easier um, for, you know, uh, students, for example, from these countries to go to India, uh, it, you know, encouraging uh, this sense and, you know, working with these countries to ensure that their priorities, um, because many of these countries welcome China into the region. They feel China's giving, you know, infrastructure that is uh, that is quick, and especially for politicians running for elections, that is important, amongst other things that China brings to the table, um, um, more parochially for them. So I think for India, the challenge really is in a more com competitive space, um, dealing now in a situation where it might have problems with Chinese, growing Chinese influence. And I think India has a bigger problem with the influence than the kind of economic activities. Um, and worrying that what China will do is use that influence to say to these countries, don't do X, Y, or Z, 
with India or with Japan or with the US. So I think India just has to kind of deliver. At the end of the day, it is the country that borders all the other South Asian countries. And so the idea is, I think you'll see a mixture of carrot and sticks, but I think India will find that the sticks are sometimes less effective and they'll have to be more in the terms of red lines that are not as aggressive as they might have been in the past. Um, but really kind of that positive offer has to be that, that kind of, you know, what are the advantages you get? Uh, and so I think it'll have to up its game. And I think one thing India is recognizing, you've already seen this change, is that India, which had a kind of Monroe Doctrine sort of thing, Indra Doctrine, I guess, um, for the Indian context, which is it wasn't really happy with external powers being oper uh, operational in the region. The one time we saw, sometimes that we saw exceptions to this is when India started worrying about China. And we saw this in the 50s in Nepal, uh, which I talk about in my book. And at that time, and you're seeing it again, when India worries that China is coming into the neighborhood and it cannot tackle and make the kind of offers, economic, others, it will, in, it, it will either look the other way when US, Japan, France, Britain, others are dealing with these countries, like-minded, even Russia. Um, and in some cases, we'll even actively cooperate with them um, to work together. So India, Japan, working together on connectivity projects or hoping to in Sri Lanka. Uh, Sheikh Hasina is in France right now. Um, you know, in, in, in the olden days, and I, I suspect some of the kind of uh, retired diplomats in India will kind of look askance at that. But I think from India's perspective, would they rather that Sheikh Hasina buy even more military equipment from the Chinese or would they rather she buy it from France uh, or Russia? Uh, and then I think you saw this in, for example, when the US and Maldives signed a defense agreement uh, last year, the year before, I think it was last year. Um, you saw India, which in any other time would have objected to that, actually welcomed um, that, uh, that agreement. So I think you have already seen change, uh, but it's incumbent upon India to A, deliver, and I think second on the points you were saying, you know, it, it's Indian domestic politics, especially kind of because of the way that, um, South Asia has, you know, is ethnically kind of situated, but how the lines were drawn is you always have kind of uh, the next, the country next door, there's some, it, it, this, the politics spills over into neighboring states. We've seen this in Assam and Bengal uh, with Bangladesh. We've seen this in kind of UP with Nepal and then you and Bihar as well. And then you've seen this, you, you've traditionally seen this in Tamil Nadu with Sri Lanka. And so I think the Indian government would do well to ensure that this kind of spillover uh, it doesn't take place. Um, and that, you know, that not making the mistake that China does, which is you're so kind of focused on your domestic political imperatives um, that you end up damaging your relationships with the very countries you need for strategic regions in, uh, reasons in your neighborhood. I think you mentioned Bangladesh and Sheikh Hasina being in France. Um, I don't know what you think about this, but to me, when I look at sort of the broader subcontinent, not South Asia at large, um, the foreign policy and economic policy her administration has sort of navigated through um, has been masterful, right? So you look at the Japanese have some projects, the Chinese get a little bit of something. Um, with India, they've made progress and have strategic relations um, that are deepening day and day uh, by, you know, with electricity and things like that. Um, and then obviously with the Americans and the Europeans, obviously it's a big market for them. And you talking, you mentioned the fact that how countries in this competitive environment will try to get the best deal for themselves. Um, Bangladesh has done really, really well, at least so far, and it remains to be seen how they navigate that, which then brings me to sort of the Indo-Pacific, right, and like the role of the UK, France, Australia, Japan, the Quad, so to speak, broadly speaking. Um, one, do you see the sort of Chinese aggression in the north on the boundary, sort of a, a premeditated bit to sort of tie up India in the Himalaya so that it doesn't pay attention to the to the ocean, particularly because of the economic gap and, and the fact that there's a resource constraint. Um, and B, if that is the case, or if it isn't, um, you know, would love to talk to you about that. But B, how do you see then these relationships shaping up in the Indo-Pacific, given sort of the fallout or the, the, you know, the Australia submarine deal and the French having a different point of view on that? And then broadly speaking, where the Quad is headed? So I think, you know, it's an interesting question what the Chinese were thinking or not thinking. And, you know, I will say, 
in our field, many of us um, don't say, I don't know um, uh, too often, but I think this is genuinely the case. You know, we're still arguing about Chinese motivations and uh, from the 1962 war. Um, and so I think we will be arguing about their motivations and you've seen kind of many explanations for uh, their moves last year. Um, so I don't know kind of what the, I think strategically, um, it has been the case, for example, that the Chinese motivations for a relationship with Pakistan are partly about tying India down in South Asia. So from a strategic perspective, I think anything that does make India a less, um, you know, uh, uh, less potent kind of, from China's perspective, rival or threat, um, any kind of strategist would take that move. I think the particular um, uh, steps at the boundary last year, uh, you know, this kind of salami slicing tactics, uh, I have, I don't know, I think in hindsight, we're saying, oh, you know, it might distract India from the kind of maritime space. I'm not sure that was, I don't think, I think we don't have sufficient evidence to back that. I think, you know, where we, we find the most plausible kind of explanations are, are of the view that, you know, either as you were indicating, it was part of this kind of broader Chinese assertiveness where they saw a window of opportunity uh, at that particular time, and they're feeling more confident. Another view version of that is they were feeling, the regime was feeling insecure given their initial handling of COVID and wanted to show strength and protect, show that they could protect sovereignty. Um, and it could be as simple as they said, you know, let's grab these pieces of land that we think territory that we think uh, we should have. And they might have underestimated the Indian response. Don't ask me why, because India in the last four or five boundary crises, or actually since consistently since uh, 1967 or so, has always reacted the same way, which is, you know, you go, you move troops up front and then you try to reverse uh, the Chinese steps. Um, but I think we'll be debating that. I think, you know, the, the question, yes, there are finite um, there are finite resources that India has, um, but, and, and so, you know, as, but as uh, Foreign Minister Jayashankar said, India just has to walk and chew gum at the same time. And he was saying that in the reference to, can you handle the fallout from Afghanistan and also kind of handle the challenge from China? But it's, it's the same case with the maritime space, but it does have an impact. I mean, I think because of the resources and you see this in terms of the military budget and, you know, the defense budget and how much the Navy gets. Um, having said that, I think it is also why you're seeing India willing to partner with like-minded countries and seeing, and goes that to a question of, you know, how India views things like AUKUS. Um, because India has these kind of, this multifaceted challenge and China is not just kind of at the land boundary in the coming into maritime space, in the digital space, in the communication space, um, that you are seeing in India say we need partners and we need to double down on partners. And it has also, I think, fundamentally changed how India sees American power and presence in the region. Uh, when I was growing up in India in the 80s, the US was considered the country that was trying to contain India's rise that was problematic. Um, and, you know, whether it was Indira Gandhi or others, it was like the US shouldn't come to the region. It's, you know, any moves by these powers, it's destabilizing. Today, um, you see this uh, very different picture. India actually worries about US withdrawing from the region, whether that's from Afghanistan or whether that would be, you know, is if the Trump administration is going to lead the Indo-Pacific. And so today, India wants to, thinks of American power not as the problem. It sees American power as part of the solution to its own China problem. And it sees the American presence in the region as helpful, including in the Indian Ocean where India is actively working with the US. Um, and it is seeing it not just as helpful, uh, but as pot potentially essential. And so it sees, I think, AUKUS partly from this prism, where if AUKUS is, for India, AUKUS at best is a reflection of US commitment to the region, or, or, or additional kind of showing a demonstration of resolve, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China. It is a kind of reflection of the Australian changed view about China and willingness to do something about it. And in both these ways, it's aligned with India. And it has the added benefit of, I think from Indian minds, the hope that the UK's new tilt to the Indo-Pacific 
is actually being implemented and will come with a better British understanding of the challenge that China poses, because they think the Brits have kind of, you know, to some extent been somewhat non-aligned or tried to hedge uh, or try to play one, one off against the other. And so I think you've seen India um, not, you know, when they've been asked, is this a problem in terms of the quad? You've seen officials say, nope, that's different. Um, and uh, you, I think where India would have liked to see some something better, which is uh, the better handling of the announcement, because the last thing they want to see is, um, you know, their partners pulling in different directions. And so for them, France is also an important partner. And they had an Australia-India-France trilateral that was moving along quite quickly, particularly maritime security, and that's essentially, you know, at least stalled for now. And so I think India would have liked to have seen that handled better. Having said that, uh, National Security Advisor Doval was in France recently for a um, uh, the strategic dialogue to meet with his counterparts, as well as the foreign and defense ministers there. Um, and you saw Foreign Minister Jayashankar meet his counterpart um, in uh, in New York, I think. And I think you saw, you know, India will see what how it can take advantage of the France and French being unhappy. Um, as for the Quad, I think you know the the India has clearly changed its mind about how much to commit itself to the Quad, and it it clearly has. Uh, this time last year, it wouldn't even use the word Quad in statements, uh, and now you've seen significant development. And I think you'll, you'll see kind of two lines of effort with the Quad, which is one kind of in a more traditional balance of power way, which is also what AUKUS is doing at a kind of higher scale or more intense scale. Um, and that's, you know, working with these countries to shape a favorable balance of power to deter China. And then I think second, you're seeing a whole range of activities which we hear more about uh, to build resilience in the region, to offer alternatives, uh, to help these countries uh, also kind of detect, deter, and then defend against challenges, whether that is China, Chinese coercion, whether that is COVID, whether that's climate change. Uh, and I think that part and the emphasis on that building resilience part partly comes from hearing from the region, again, going back to smaller states have agency uh, and have some power that they can deploy, which is hearing from the region that, you know, we would, we want you to do things that are helpful to us. Otherwise, you guys are going to, you know, play these power games and that is either irrelevant to our needs or it is actively harmful. Um, and so even though China is doing actively harmful things to us, it's also giving us this infrastructure and other things that's useful in the short term. So what are you bringing to the table? So I think that building resilience part is partly about um, bringing forward you know, regional uh, solutions to and tangible solutions to regional problems. So one, one thing where you conclude this sort of paper is sort of, I would say on a hopeful note, but it's also maybe posed as a question towards the end is, you know, there are opportunities for cooperation in the middle of this rivalry that is emerging and, and going to dominate South Asia. Um, obviously, where we are today with the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan, the Taliban government coming in, um, no you know, inkling of dialogue between India and Pakistan, the boundary dispute in the North we've talked at length about. Um, from your point of view, what are these areas of cooperation, if any? And how would you then, if you were to put your hat on and, and sort of fast forward five, 10 years from now, say that, you know what, we had this moment of rivalry in the region and rather than descend into conflict and more chaos that, you know, this region has seen for at least seven decades, if not more, um, maybe we came out better as a more integrated, as a more uh, connected, you know, uh, community uh, in this region. How does that happen, if at all? So, Sarah, you, I hope you're not overselling the optimism in the report to... Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I, I am actually making it no, be think, more optimistic I, in that I, I sense. I think we need more kind of optimism in the field. I was thinking the other day, you know, we should end every kind of meeting or event with what's the, what good news can somebody share today? Um, I do think, you know, um, especially for even in the Cold War, you actually saw competition in some ways. It was very disruptive, superpower competition for, um, so I'll, I'll do this in two ways. One is there's scope for cooperation between the rivals, particularly kind of India, China, because I think there's a lot out there on US, China, and we could be here for the rest of the week. But um, but I'll first talk about kind of the opportunity for smaller states. I think, 
you know, what you saw, and actually India did this um, masterfully in some ways. Um, you know, India, Indian analysts would often say, oh, you know, the Cold War prevented us from, was a, was a distraction, it was, a, you know, we, there were so many more important things. But one question I have and can't answer, it's a counterfactual. But part of what the Cold War did is it actually gave India importance. And India used it to then get development assistance because the military assistance got more attention. But actually it got billions, particularly from the US, but also from the Soviet Union. And then from you know, what was then called the India Aid Consortium, um, which was an initial issue-based coalition. So we think of these things as new. Um, but it had Germany, um, uh, France, Japan, and, and some others, um, the UK, and I think Canada. But I think what you saw is that these countries actually use that competition for their own benefits. Um, and at, and one can hope that without the kind of downsides, that there will be downsides if this competition intensified, that I do hope that we do see um, these countries managing to uh, find a way to, to kind of use this to, for their own growth and development. And in a good way, not just for, you know, white elephants in the middle of nowhere. Um, but, you know, for example, especially since you see a more competitive environment, you're not seeing all the major powers actually cooperate. And I'll come to that. And it actually helps lead me into that, the, the kind of other uh, where you can actually see scope for, for cooperation. Um, you, you see these countries now using competition to try to get COVID assistance. Frankly speaking, this should, this should have been done on a global level, and it's not great that that's happening. Um, but otherwise, you would have seen these countries, you know, pretty much ignored or way down the list. So I think, you know, nimble smaller states, and it's, it's quite, I mean, I always kind of laugh when I say smaller states in South Asia, because they're so massive. Um, Bangladesh, as you mentioned, is a great example. Um, but I think there is, you know, whatever they can do to kind of stay away from or, or kind of insulate themselves um, from kind of this rivalry and try to maximize the benefit for their populations. Uh, and also to encourage. Now, one thing kind of the non-aligned world did was try to actually encourage the rivals to dialogue in areas or to cooperate in areas um, where they, their, you know, their, um, uh, there were existential kind of problems for these countries. In those days, you know, you, you found it in terms of kind of the nuclear side, but you know, you're hearing, for example, a number of um, island states talking about uh, climate change as being one of those areas. Um, just quickly on the kind of where you can see US, China, or India, China cooperate. I think there is still scope for cooperation. One, I actually don't, I, I think competition's here to stay. Um, so I think the challenge is to manage competition. And I think that can be done. The countries have done it. India, China have done it. Um, the mechanisms exist. They might need to be, I think they do need to be refreshed. Um, but you can manage competition and try to ensure that it does not spill over into conflict. After all, the Soviet Union and the US managers. So I think learning kind of the lessons from there on what can be done, we're hearing some reports that there will be a nuclear dialogue between set up between the US and China to talk about some of these issues. And that's one area, kind of uh, nuclear proliferation, arms control. Uh, you can see another area would be climate change. You can see a third area um, being global public health. And frankly, it would help if all the countries got together and dealt with these pandemics. Um, but I do think, you know, there has to be a financial stability is another one, just like after the global financial crisis. But I think we have to be realistic that um, if competition intensifies, seems to be, you're also going to see competition uh, spill over into these, you'd think, cooperative areas. And I think you're seeing this, for example, in climate change, where in the solar power sector, it's become, you know, countries, India and the US are concerned about dependence on China. Uh, there's competitions in terms of clean energy technologies. Um, and you can see it, for example, in global public health. For that matter, you can see it, you know, the countries should have been cooperating on Myanmar and Afghanistan and the situations there. And you're seeing kind of those competitive dynamics spill over because at the end of the day, the countries actually have a common objective in stability and in terms of stability in those countries, but the competition spills over. So I think, you know, to, to, 
end on a kind of optimistic, this point on an optimistic note, um, there is scope uh, to both manage competition and find islands of cooperation and maybe even expand them. Uh, since we, you know, since China likes to island build, uh, you can keep, you know, maybe, uh, maybe uh, uh, do a little bit of that, reclaim, uh, reclaim some, uh, uh, some land reclamation on the, on the cooperative side. But I also do think we have to be realistic about what's possible. And I do think it's important that, that the price of that cooperation shouldn't be uh, accepting uh, China, for example, you know, doing more island building or changing the status quo somewhere else. I don't think that should be the price of cooperation because I think that only leads to further instability down the line. Yeah, no, I think, and we'll end on that hopeful note because I agree with you. I think there's lots to cooperate on and, and hopefully, you know, the rivalry, you know, it's, it's, again, you can do talk, talk, fight, fight at the same time, and maybe smaller countries and the people of South Asia benefit from the strategic competition and their leaders have the, you know, more importantly, their leaders have the foresight to take advantage of this rivalry for the benefit of their own people, because at the end of the day, it is a relatively poor region with serious needs and climate changes having an impact already. And it is going to be a hot spot that is going to be impacted by climate change. So I think there's lots of areas for cooperation and hopefully we don't ignore that. Um, before I let you go, I always ask my guests, like what are three books that you would recommend uh, to the audience? Um, so I'll recommend one book that has been kind of influential in my thinking. It's not a book about South Asia, and, but I will kind of make up for that with two books that are more kind of South Asia uh, specific. Um, the book that kind of is, has been influential in how I think about ideas and, and particularly policy is a book uh, by Louis Menon called uh, uh, The Metaphysical Club. And it's not really about metaphysics. Uh, the book is really about, it looks at how the idea of evolution caught on. And it is a story told through kind of four characters, um, uh, prominent characters uh, 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 in the US about how the theory of evolution, the ideas existed for years, decades before they finally took hold. And so this is really a book that talks about how and when and why ideas that have been floating around in the ether suddenly take hold. And for those of us who work in think tanks or in the ideas industry, uh, as Dan Dresner puts it, this, it was kind of quite interesting to me to think about, you know, how, how to find and grasp those key moments when there's a confluence of conditions that those ideas. So either you try to shape those moments uh, or you, you know, it helps you think about taking advantage of those moments to think about impact, to think about um, how you get ideas into policy. So that's one book and it's quite interesting. It's not a dry book. It's, it's built around these characters and, and you see the, Charles Darwin puts in an appearance too. Um, I think I will definitely check this one out because one of the things I've been wondering throughout this conversation and just in general, as I think about the US-China rivalry, right, is the idea of the Thucydides trap and how and why did it become such you know the the core of what we study in ir if you studied ir political science that you always end up studying this and how this ancient greek war continues to inform the way we look at great power competition right so i think they have they, they last for a long time as well once they get introduced as ideas and people people pick them up out of the ether but so thanks for that but sorry go on no, and, and on the kind of history side, there are actually, you know, all these books now about or papers about the use and, uh, and misuse of analogies as well, which is the kind of, you know, the associated version of that. Uh, the other two books are uh, by um, Indian scholars, one uh, by Srinath Raghavan that didn't get as much attention in his more recent books. Um, but is, uh, it was his first book, um, War and Peace in Modern India. Uh, I think it was published in 2010. And the reason I mention it, and there, there are sections on it, including, uh, and it's really a book about kind of Nehru's ideas and the implementation. Um, but the reason I mention it is, and there are sections on India, Pakistan, I think there are two or even more chapters on that. Um, but it is, it pushes against this idea of, and at that time it was considered quite different. Now we've seen a lot more of this. It was one of the first books to really use the archival 
um, data that was coming out, the papers that were coming out of India, uh, both at the Nehru Memorial Library as well as uh, uh, the National Archives. And he pushes back against the other that in, in Nehru was this idealist who uh, was kind of a nonviolent rejecter of force or the balance of power. Um, and he actually, you know, lays out how actually Nehru uh, did not, as, as uh, you know, Pakistan uh, knows, as, as China also knows, as, uh, as arguably the Portuguese found out as well, um, that, you know, and, and many of these instances that, that the China war is covered, uh, the Goa um, takeover is covered, is thinking about how Nehru thought about uh, the world, the Cold War, Indian foreign policy, but also particularly this idea of the use of force. So I think it's useful in terms of also hopefully it'll open a door to your listeners to the range of other kind of rethinking about Indian foreign policy that archival data has made open. It'll also make us, it makes us rethink some of our assumptions about what India will do or not do in many instances. The second is by Pallavi Raghavan. Uh, I guess they are two Raghavans that I met. They're not related as far as I know. Maybe they are. I do not know. This could be a Desi thing where they are. Um, and in a, in a, the Raghavans are like the Patels. <laughs> They're all related. Well, you know, I, now I'm going to actually check. Yeah. But um, actually, they might be. I, I don't know. But Dr. Raghavan, who teaches at Ashoka University, wrote a book based on her dissertation. And it's called Animosity at Bay. Um, uh, an alternate history of India-Pakistan relations from 1947 to 1952. And it is a nice departure, but also very interesting. Uh, we all, like when we study kind of India-Pakistan history, you know, the focus is always on kind of the, the conflict and the, especially in 48, or it's about the partition and the aftermath of that. And what uh, Pallavi looks at is she looks at kind of the state building that both countries were undertaking and how they actually had to because you know the armies were the same the uh, structures were the same and how they actually divvied up things but the engagement that actually took place um amongst the two countries and the bureaucrats and the politicians to actually kind of help build those th their respective states um and so it's just a very different take covers different issues the economic um you know the economic side of it is also covered so to me, you know, these uh, those are the other two two books I would suggest. And just since I mentioned the Cold War and how countries take advantage, and uh, uh, perhaps there are lessons in it uh, for kind of smaller states in South Asia. Uh, so you get a bonus book is David Engerman's uh, The Price of Aid, which looks at Soviet and U.S. competition to kind of aid India. Um, I don't necessarily agree with uh, uh, David's kind of view uh, of he's he's quite critical of kind of foreign aid because I actually think can't blame foreign aid for economic decisions India made. Uh, those were Indian decisions. Um, but uh, it's a very interesting book. Again, it goes back to archival um, sources from uh, China, sorry, from uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the US and, and India. I'll take a look at that one because I haven't read this, but I lean the way you described why you disagree with David. I actually am on his side already in the sense that you know, coming from Pakistan and the continuous flow of aid and donor money um, does impact decision making and it allows politicians to kick the can down the road. Um, so I'll, I'll have a look at that one. But on the on the book about, you know, the early days of India, Pakistan, um, I until recently did not know that prior to the 1965 war, you did not need visas to cross the border. And people did, and I asked my father that the other day, and he was like, yeah, and I was like, how, how are we not taught this? Like, you know, so yet the fact, again, thinking about ideas that catch on, the fact that our history, our shared history has been so dominated by conflict and anger and, and the brutal traumatic history of partition means that we at times forget that there's a lot more that shared is shared even after 1947, because these were young states that needed all the help and the people who actually migrated from Gujarat or Punjab or the civil servants from UP, et cetera, across the border mm -hmm. or from Pakistani Punjab or Sindh um, were colleagues and they had worked together and they helped each other out in those early days to make sure that their states, because ultimately they were free from colonialism. And we forget that the shared objective was freedom from a colonial power. And somehow we've forgotten that. We can always agree uh, on blaming the Brits. Uh, that is a source of convergence and may it continue to be so. <laughs> I, think, 
think the, the World Cup is going on and today England lost to New Zealand. And I think, yes, on social media, Indians and Pakistanis alike were very happy that our former colonial masters have, are out of the World Cup. So I did also, I did also see some jokes that uh, England is now probably sitting and cheering uh, for Pakistan. Yeah, well, we'll see how that one tomorrow, particularly, they might cheer. But let's see. But thank you so much, Dr. Tanvi, for taking out the time. This was wonderful. Um, to those of you who are tuning in, check out her book and the paper. Links are below. Um, and have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thanks, Azir.